I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Praiser. He uh, lectured for us earlier on hyperhidrosis. He is the professor in Derm uh, Department of Dermatology at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, where he's also the senior physician in Praiser Dermatology Specialists. A private group practices with 10 dermatologists, seven PAs, and one nurse practitioner. He is quite active in affairs of the American Academy of Dermatology. Dr. Brazier has served over 100 committees with an officer and board member of the American Academy of Dermatology for 14 years and was, uh, was in 2009-2010 president. Please help me in welcoming Ms. Dr. Brazier. Okay, well, we're gonna talk about a non-medical topic for the next hour or so, and this is one which is of highly interest to you guys as well as, as it is to, uh, to us as dermatologists. And if I can have the first title slide on, well, let's go back one. The workforce in dermatology is an, a real issue for us now and will be more so going forward. As healthcare reform legislation takes effect over the next couple of years, and by 2014, when we have these 40 some million people who are currently underinsured or uninsured in the healthcare system, Somebody's gonna to have to take care of them. And when it comes to taking care of their skin disease, it's not going to be dermatologists that are gonna be taking care of them because already dermatologists are maxed out. There's no growth in the dermatologist workforce. We have about 320 new dermatologists a year coming out of residency training programs. And we have about that many or even slightly more than that who are retiring or leaving the workforce at the other end of it. And there's a particular unique quality about dermatologists as opposed to other physicians in that still today, just under 50% of dermatologists are in solo private practice. And when you count onesie twosies, two, two dermatologists or less in a practice, it's two thirds. And I can't tell you how many of my dermatologist colleagues have told me over the last few years you know, I'm just not gonna mess with this healthcare reform stuff. I'm not gonna mess with electronic health records and e-prescribing and PQRI. I'm just gonna retire. And so I think we're gonna have a real crisis in the dermatology workforce, already do, but it's gonna get worse over the next couple of years. So who is going to provide the care for the patients, the skin diseases, as healthcare reform matures? And the answer is obvious, it's you guys, okay? You're, the, the ranks of, particularly PAs, but some nurse practitioners, are growing, are growing much more rapidly than the dermatologists, which is a great growth rate of zero almost, but you guys are growing exponentially. So you're the ones that are gonna be taking care of the skin disease in a larger and larger majority of patients. So because of that, dermatologists feel and the academy as an entity feels some obligation to help you guys along and to be sure that you're practicing appropriate care that the, uh, and, and doing what's good for the patients. And although that's a big and sort of generous and generic sort of topic, I'd like to boil it down to some specifics about where we stand now in the training and supervision of PAs and nurse practitioners from the standpoint of the academy and from the standpoint of a practicing physician like myself who works daily with PAs and for, for you guys. So I don't have any conflicts of interest about this. You've already heard that, that um, 
my practice is a heavy user employer of PAs. And those of you who are in the, the leadership of this society know that for me, as president, past president of the academy and, and been involved in these workforce issues, I have been 100% supportive of bringing PAs along with us uh, as, we go, as we go through this into healthcare reform and into the new world of, of healthcare delivery. But I do have another conflict of interest that I, that I have to say, and, and that is that you're PAs and you're not physicians. And although you're a great part of the team, an indispensable part of the team, there are a lot of docs who feel that when, you when a doc delegates a care to a PA or a practitioner or anybody else who's not even a dermatologist, even a physician who's not a dermatologist, that there is going to be a different standard of care practiced than there is if it's the doc who's doing it. And I think that is true to a degree, and it's the question is how much and where do, where, where do we go? And I'm gonna, I, hope, I hope to engender some controversy uh, during this hour, and I, ho I hope that you will all do that. So I think that's a potential conflict of interest. So NPCs, non-physician clinicians, how many dermatologists actually do? Well, this was 2007, four years ago now. And at that time, 40% of dermatologists said they practiced with a non-physician clinician, uh, and another 10% said they were thinking about it over the next couple of years. And the number is now over 50%. But it's not everybody. And there still is, I have to tell you, some degree of resistance in the dermatology community and in the academy to the delegation of care to non-physicians. Having physician, um, non-physician non clinicians, physician extenders, whatever you want to call them, has not affected the wait time. Uh, practices who use uh, PAs and nurse practitioners, haven't, it hasn't affected wait times. Busy people are busy, and that hasn't helped with that. Uh, in, in practices without, this is a, a survey again a few years ago, but five years ago now, 34-day average wait time in a practice that didn't use extenders, and in practices who did, 28-day wait time to see the extender, and, 30, and 46 days to see the doc. I don't know what it is in each of your individual practices. I'm sure it varies quite all over the map, depending on where, on, on where you are. Um, this was, again, the non-physician clinicians doing medical, cosmetic, and non-cosmetic surgical dermatology, and basically they do about the same that the docs do. But here's the issue that I want to talk about, is what's the appropriate level of supervision? And when we surveyed, we, the Academy, surveyed our membership, three-quarters of our members practiced in a situation where there was indirect supervision, meaning that the physician was on site but did not necessarily see the patients. So I want to do a little survey here, okay? How many of you are on site with your supervising physician all the time? Okay, most. How many of you are not all the time on site? More than, more than half, okay? How many of you, when you're practicing on site with a physician, share or show most of your patients to the physician and I'll the less, less than most. Most You share most patients or not? Okay, mostly you don't, okay? And that's the way most of us practice. But I have to tell you that, the, that there are some, there's some strong feelings that, that that's not, not the best way to do things. Here's, here's what I say. So, you know, so most, most practices, um, PAs will see new and established patients, just like the dermatologist does, seeing all comers. Okay, so what is, the what, what is the appropriate training and supervision? 
for, phys for physician non-clinicians. Well, first of all, what's a, um, let's define what is a dermatologist and what's a, what, what's a PA. Well, um, the academy has recently defined what a dermatologist is. And a dermatologist is a licensed medical doctor and the only residency trained physician, specialist fully educated in the science and art of cutaneous medicine, which includes medical, surgical, pathologic, aesthetic conditions, and skin, hair, nails, and mucous membranes, and who is eligible for board certification from the American Board of Dermatology, the Royal College of Physicians in Canada, or the American Osteopathic Board of Dermatology. That's what's a dermatologist. All right, what's a PA? Well, the definition of that varies to some degree state by state. In my state, Virginia, a PA is a healthcare professional licensed by the State Board of Medicine who's completed an educational program and passed the exam. That's pretty much the same in, in, in most states. But what's a dermatology PA? Well, I don't think there's a clear definition of that. Is it a member of this society, the SDPA? Is it any PA working in a dermatologist's office? Is it anybody who says they're a dermatology PA? What is it, dermatology PA? And, and I think that we don't know the answer to that question, and I would urge you to try as a society to actually answer that uh, and to define specifically what is a dermatology PA. Is somebody who practices in a family practice setting but does the, all, does the skin disease, is that a dermatology PA? Because I think for, for your profession to advance to the next level, it needs to do what the medical profession did in the 1930s, and that is specialize and, and really do it and not just say, well, we're all PAs and we're all certified by the AAPA, we all have to take the PA certification. And I know that there may be, that there's political reasons why you're not doing that, but I think you really need to do that. So the Academy says that patients receive the highest quality of dermatologic care when their care is provided by a dermatologist with specialized medical training and expertise. And the delivery of dermatologic services by a non-dermatologist physician or an unsupervised non-physician may result in higher incidence of adverse events and complications and suboptimal results. Now, it doesn't say that people who are treated by PAs are going to be suboptimal. It's going to say unsupervised PAs may be suboptimal, maybe. But at certain times and under, certain, and under the direction of a board-certified dermatologist, the practice of dermatology does require a team approach and may include other providers, including but not limited to non-physician dermatologists, advanced practitioners, that's you and the nurse practitioner, and allied health professionals, medical assistants, and others. So what, what can PAs do? Well, my state, PAs can do anything their supervising doctor says they can do, as long as they're properly supervised. And that's pretty much the same definite definition in, uh, in most other states. So the academy says that training of all personnel should be commensurate with their licensure and commensurate with the degree of difficulty and complexity of the medical care, diagnosis, treatments, procedures, techniques, services, or tasks being delegated to them by a dermatologist. So basically, what that means is you guys can do anything you, that your supervising doctor will let you do, but importantly, will train you to do and supervise you while you're doing. So how much, how much dermatology training do PAs get? Well, not much is the answer unless you have a specific interest in dermatology. Because in PA school, I don't know how, what, what your individual experiences were, but you probably got a few lectures, and maybe you did a clinical, clinical rotation. But that's about it. Most PAs do not have any formal training after graduation from PA school. But there, as I'm sure you know, there are one or two places that have a PA residency in dermatology. 
nurse practitioners have a sim a one fellowship anyway. And there's all kinds of educational modalities. I know you all have been through m many of that, and you're here at this, at this meeting. But most of what you learned, I think, and unless I'm mistaken, you learned on the job, or you learned because your supervising doc trained you that, uh, or you taught yourself, or you got continuing education through the SDPA or other, or, other, or other organization. But for the most part, most education of PAs now is provided by the supervising doc, at least at the beginning, uh, in, in a practice setting. Now in Virginia, we have three specific definitions of supervision, and this, this may vary a little bit from, from state to state, but we have direct supervision where the physician is personally in the exam room when the key procedures, portions of service are rendered. I think that seldom happens in the real world of supervision of PAs. I think we have what's called, in Virginia, it's called personal supervision where the physician's in the office, and about a third of you answered that that was the way you normally, they normally work. And Virginia, and most states, does have this category, we call it general supervision, but there may be other names, when the physician is easily available. And that's defined by the doc could get there in an hour if he had to. And, you can, and, there, and there is some means of electronic communication um, in, to, to provide help. And that is the way that many, many, uh, many, more of, um, many PAs work, where their supervisor is not physically on site. And I have to tell you, that the American Academy of Dermatology thinks that that's okay under exceptional circumstances, but should not be the routine way things are done. Because the optimum degree of dermatologic care, according to the Academy, is delivered when a dermatologist, as defined, provides direct on-site supervision. Now, it doesn't say that a bad degree of care occurs when it's not, but in the opinion of the Academy, that's the best way to do it. Doesn't mean that's the way it's done most of the time. Okay, so when practicing dermatologists des delegates uh, to things such as PAs, appropriate training and experience, sh there should be appropriate training and experience. I don't think anybody can argue with that. But here's the thing, under exceptional extenuating circumstances when the dermatologist is not available on site, written protocols and procedures should provide a mechanism for a patient to be seen by the dermatologist in a timely fashion in person or via te teledermatology. So in my practice, we don't routinely schedule the PA to be in an office when a doc isn't there. But when the doc is not there for some reason, the PA still works by herself, because we, we only have female PAs at the moment. But we have protocols as to how to handle things. And when, uh, so, so we, don't, uh, we don't say that, that the PAs never see patients without a doc in the office, but they don't routinely. And I think that's really the way the Academy's guidelines work. Now, that's not according to state law and your supervising doc may want to do something different. There's nothing illegal or wrong about that, but the academy is defining optimal care as in the office supervision most of the time, except under these, these circumstances. So here's the question I have for you, and you have to answer this because I can't, and that is, should there be specialty certification in dermatology for PAs? And if so, what would that mean, and how would you get it? Would there be some sort of standardized training, uh, a core body of knowledge, a core curriculum? I know that you have that in, in, on online modules and other, and other sorts of things, but that's not one which has, has led to a, to, to a demonstration of learning, i.e. a board certification examination, and some continuing education requirements, such as like there is for, for, for physicians. So I, I know that there's no PA specially that's there yet, but I think that that you would enhance your 
your your uh, your part of the your worth as part of the system if there were such a thing. And this is something where I'm hoping to develop some controversy, because I'm sure that none of you says, "Well, I don't want to ever have to take a test. I don't want to take a board exam." But maybe at some point it would be the best thing to do. Now you could do what the medical profession did 75 years ago, and that is grandfather everybody who's currently out there, and then just say, "Okay, all new people have to take." Have to, be, have to be trained and have to be certified. I don't know if you want to do that, but something I think you ought to work toward. All right, let me skip that. So what is proper training? And, and, and should there be standard, standardization and certification? Well, let me tell you what I do in my practice. And this is just me, one person, but I think this is what I feel follows the guidelines of the, of the academy, follows the state law, exceeds the requirements of the law, and most importantly, this is what I think develops the best care for the patients that we see in our practice. We see 8,000 patients a month in our, uh, in our locations in southeastern Virginia. So if, if you came to work for me, and by the way, any, any of my PAs work in my practice, anybody here from my practice today? I don't know, I have to, I'm gonna have to fuss at all of them for not coming. Let me get back. Um, if I were to hire you, it would be six months before you saw your first patient by yourself. And during the first three months, you would be essentially a dermatology resident. Now, we have the luxury in our practice of, uh, of being very closely associated with a residency program, and the dermatology residents rotate through our office. So you would do the same thing that the residents do. And you would attend all the departmental conferences, you would go to grand rounds, you would see patients that you have no idea what they are, all the weird stuff, and, you, and because half the dermatologists have no idea what they are either, but you would see, so that you say, you, you will not develop, what I have heard some PAs say, well, Everything I see is either acne, eczema, or warts, there's nothing else. So it's eczema is eczema, and that's all we do. Well, that's because you don't know what you don't know. And it gives you a nice flavor to realize, you know, there's no dermatologist that knows everything, and there's no PAs that know everything either. So for the first three months, you'd co-tail with me and the other doctors in the practice. You'd, you'd go to the, uh, all the resident conferences. We'd, we'd do some practicing of procedures on pig's feet, and we'd, we'd go through a training manual that, that I have. In the second three months, uh, you continue to go to the conferences. We'd still practice on the pig's feet. You'd start to have your own limited patient schedule of follow-up visits. And, but every one of those patients you would present to me or one of the other docs, and I'd check you out. And then after that six-month period, and then I'm ready to let you go on your own. You'll have your own schedule. I'll tell you, I'll notify the state of Virginia Board of Medicine that you're ready to work under general supervision when needed. And uh, you'd be, you'd, you'd be um, what I would consider fully trained as a PA, although you're gonna to continue to learn as we all do throughout your entire practice life. So in our practice, the PA schedules routinely conform to the doctor's schedule, but as I said, when the doc's not there, we don't cancel out the PA schedule. Uh, the PA practices on her own. And um, if there's an acute or emergent situation, obviously there's the phone call, but uh, the patient can be sent to another one of our office locations in that same day if needed, or can be given an expedited follow-up appointment uh, if the PA is not really sure what's going on with any, any individual person. So it's all about training, 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 and supervision. So I, I really think that non-physician clinicians, such as PAs, have truly given an added dimension of care to a busy practice like ours. Um, there are some things that you guys do better than I do. And, you, and, and patient education, and FaceTime, and it's very important to people now. 
and, and with the, you know, the way that the, the doc schedules are, are so busy and so filled and, and so rushed, it's really, really hard for the doc to spend the face time that we really would like to be able to with all the patients. It's very important for you, for you to do that. Um, you do a lot in terms of, 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 of follow-up care. In my office, pay, uh, the PAs manage, there isn't anything I can think of that the, that the PAs don't do when appropriately, appropriately delegate. I mean, manage all the patients on psoriasis, uh, on biologics who have psoriasis. PAs do that. Uh, I talked earlier about the uh, treatment, the hyperhidrosis treatments. Um, virtually every medical and most, most procedural condition. Now, our practice is not a big cosmetic practice, but I'm actually encouraging our PAs to be the ones who do the cosmetic work. Because I think that, that, that first of all, um, our PAs are all young women, and women patients like to have women providers, particularly when it comes to, uh, to cosmetic and beauty things, and uh, we, we've encouraged that. So I think that's an added dimension that, uh, that, that PAs have brought to our, to our, our med busy medical and surgical practice. Um, when I give a talk like this to dermatologists, I tell them that the, the single most important thing you can do to improve the dermatologist's quality of life is to hire a PA because it will really it makes the office day go better and much, much quicker. So that is my story on this because in the end, a physician extender is an extension of the, of the individual dermatologist. And in a practice like mine, where we've got 10 different docs, you can imagine that there's, there's 10 different docs, but there's 20 different styles of practice. Everybody does things a little differently. And our PAs are trained, when you're working with Dr. X, you can do things like Dr. X does, but when you're working with Dr. Y, you do things like Dr. Y does. Uh, and you know, yes, you develop your own, your own style, but uh, you, know, you, you really have to mirror the supervising uh, the physician, and we really try to, we really try to do that. And I think that it really enhances the quality of care. I don't know how I would possibly practice anymore without the PAs. Now, that's the end of my presentation, but it's not even half of the allotted time. So what I'm hoping is that we're going to stimulate some conversation here. And I'd like to hear some reaction from, uh, from, from you about, about this. And I'm particularly interested in those of you who really practice on your own and seldom actually see your supervising doctor along with patients every day. How does that feel? How do, you, do you like that? Do you prefer to be supervised? What do you know? I don't know. Let's, let's talk at me. Some, st get it started. We had that mic on in the, on the aisle Number there. three. Is it on now? Yeah, go Thank ahead. you. Um, I was, had a question in mind, but as you said that as I was walking up, um, I practiced uh, for seven years in dermatology. It's my whole lifetime as a, as a PA at this point. I switched careers um, in my early 30s. But um, my... Uh, Experience has been in both direct and general supervision. And I work for a Mohs surgeon, general dermatologist, cosmetic. We do a lot of different things. <clears throat> and I can find, I, I, you know, I shadow exactly what, or mirror what he does in a lot of ways, assistant surgery. But I have a, a following of my own patients. Mm -hmm. And what I, my, this goes with my question, I practice in Virginia. And in Virginia, we have this fourth visit rule. And it gets a little, I wonder if you could speak to that at all and maybe broaden it out for other states. But... I have my own following of patients. I'm female, he's male. There's plenty of women who we've, who we've had uh, Mohs surgery with before who prefer to have their skin checks done with me. We've already established rapport. I've done their skin graft, whatever. They like, they like me. And um, so after a while, you've working there for a long time, I'm realizing that they're not seeing the doc anymore. Um, so to abide by rules and regulations and things, how does your practice work with that fourth visit rule? Rosacea is another thing. They come twice a year. They like me. They see me. We're in. We're out. It's great. 
But again, the, the rules of Virginia, and how do you manage that? Okay, well, the, everybody knows what the fourth visit rule is. That means that every fourth visit, the doc, doc has to see you. So every fourth visit, you would, bring, you would come to me out and grab me in the hallway and say, I want you to see Mrs. Jones. She's been coming to me for, for rosacea. Uh, I walk in and say, hi, Mrs. Jones. Do you have any problems with what's going on? Do you have any questions for me? No, fine, thank you, goodbye. It's 15 seconds. I saw the patient and follow the rule. <laughs> Covers that, okay. That's how we do it. And the other one about the woman who really doesn't want to undress in front of the doctor anymore because she'd rather just been sitting skin, skin checks with me. That's fine, too. That, that's absolutely fine. And, and we do, uh, you know, we have sort of a, uh, you know, patients can choose the gender of their provider. Uh, we do have female providers, uh, female docs. We don't have any male PAs, but there, you know, if it's a female person and there's no female doc and the patient would prefer to see the PA, that's fine. That's fine with me. And if but the, you know, the, what, what, what the PA does say, well, you know, if I see some suspicious lesion or something that I want the doc to see, I'm going to bring him in to see that, him or her, in to see that one specific thing, and, and, and that's fine. Uh, but there are oftentimes when a patient will call up and say, you know, um, I want to see the PA. I don't want to see the doc. I, you know, I, I'm, my, pet, my family went to see the, to this PA. I, this is who I want to see. And you know, it's a new patient, never been to see the practice before. And we say, that's fine. Uh, you, you'll, you'll see the PA. But you know, if I'm there, I'll walk in for that 15-second visit to say that I saw him and that I looked at so, you know, what was the chief complaint? Well, OK, well, it was this. I saw it. Yes, I agree with what the PA says. And it, it's no skin off of my butt. It's no time. And it follows the rules. And I think, it's, I think it's important because once in a while you walk, uh, you know, I'll go in there and, you know, that really isn't rosacea. You know, I think that might actually be, we, want, we ought to think about the possibility of getting an ANA and check for lupus. And, oh, yeah. So it, it happens once in a while. Just want to say one more thing. Um, for us middle-aged women who do cosmetics, I think we're great spokeswomen for... Uh, the women that would like to do things as they hit 40, 45, whatever it is. And you had mentioned that in your practice you have young women doing cosmetics. I think it's a great opportunity for middle-aged women also as PAs or men to, to step into that as well because we can speak to it, you know. We're dealing right. with it as well. Well, I, w uh, I wouldn't, for my middle-aged providers, I would still call them young. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Hi there. Um, so I've been a practicing Durham PA for 10 years, just to give you my experience of training. For the first two years, I worked with two physicians, one as more of an autonomous practice, the second with direct supervision. And as my practice grew, I became more and more autonomous. I probably see about 95% of my patients on my own, more difficult cases we consult. And in the last year, we had a controversy in our office that one of the physicians wanted to take back and go back to being more direct supervision and we've actually had a divorce in our practice regarding that. So from the AAD standpoint, how do they define direct supervision is my first question. And the second aspect regarding education, I think that the SDPA has done a wonderful job with their um, distant learning initiative and their modules in trying to create some uniform education. Okay, thanks for that. And I, and I, in terms of your second point, I totally agree with that, and I, I'm, I am familiar with the, the patient modules, the, the, the education that the SCPA has, and I think that's great. Um, you know, what, what does the academy say? The academy says that the best care is, is provided when the physician is on site. That's what it says. It doesn't say that when the physician sees every patient. It used to. The academy's guidelines used to say that every new patient and every new problem in an existing patient should be seen face-to-face -face by the dermatologist. It doesn't say that anymore. And it's, pur it's purposely a little vague. It's purposely a little vague because 
the practice is vague of what, you know, what's out there, what's really the case. I mean, in the real world, under general supervision, the doctors would never, almost never have to see any patients in the real world. You know, and part of the, uh, of, of the reason for that is, you know, one of the reasons for establishing the profession of PAs was to provide rural care in places where docs weren't. Well, that's, that happens once in a great while, but I don't imagine many of you practice in rural areas where there's no docs. Uh, most people practice where the docs are, and that's in the, in the urban areas. So the academy's, uh, the academy's position is purposely a bit vague about that. What it says is the best care is provided when the dermatologist is physically on site with the PA. It doesn't say that bad care is provided when it's not. And so it's left to each, it's left to each person to decide their own. Thank you. Because if we tried to define one thing, it wouldn't, the shoe wouldn't fit everyone, and, and we would, uh, half of, most of our people would, be a, would not be following their own policies. Yes, ma'am. My question actually uh, goes towards the billing side of when you are on site with your supervising physician. Um, our office, anyways, found it. There's a little bit of vagueness as to billing. Obviously, for Medicare, if the physician comes in the room and examines the patient, then you can bill under them. But there seems to be some vagueness in regards to if they're on site but they don't go in the room, they have <clears throat> had AKs before but you treat new AKs, is that a, a new problem and then you have to bill under yourself? Could you uh, perhaps speak to that in how you utilize it in your practice or do you just have the PAs bill under themselves? Okay, that's a great question, and it's a real practical issue, and there's no definitive answer for that one either. Um, you know, obviously, you, you all know what the issue is, that if, you, if, uh, if the doc provides the service, or if the doc is physically present when the significant portion of the service is present, then you're, you are working incident to the doc's service by Medicare rules. You bill under the doc's number and get paid the doc rate. If you're not that, and you're billing under your own number, your own service number for Medicare and some private payers, then you, there's, their payment is less than, in, than, it's, than if it's direct working under the supervision of the doc. Well, okay, so in our office, if, uh, if the PA is there and the doc is there and the doc sees the patient with the PA, it's obviously that's, that's incident to and that's full billing. And if, it's not, if the doc does not see the patient at all, then the PA bills under their own number. Now, some people don't do it that way, and some people say, well, if the doc was in the office, that's good enough, that's close enough, we'll bill under the doc's number. I don't think that's really right, but I can't truly say that it's wrong either. I think that's gonna, you're gonna have to ask individu each individual payer how they want that to be handled. But you know, one of the uh, uh, criticisms that you know, Academy members who are not in favor of this whole PA business at all, what they say is, well, if it's okay for a patient to come in, see a PA, never see a doc, bill for and, and pay at the reduced rate, if I were an insurance company, why would I pay the docs? Anything other than that at a reduced rate? Because if it's good enough for the doc to let the patients be all seen by the PA, why should I pay for the doc? And that's an argument which I, which, um, we're starting to see happen. I just was called by somebody in Florida who, um, any, any guys in Florida? I don't know if you know about, I don't know, there's some, some a large multi-county dermatology practice. Uh, some set up a bunch of satellite offices with PAs in them, no docs ever go to any of those offices. 
Uh, then they went to the insurance company in Florida and say, we'll do dermatology for you for all of your patients on an exclusive basis at the PA rate. You don't ever have to pay a doc again. And uh, you can imagine how the, the other docs in, the, in Florida feel, felt about that. So um, that's something that worries a lot of, of uh, dermatologists, frankly. Yes, sir. I just want to address this issue of uh, supervision, which I think is sort of interesting. Um, it's almost a, it's a problem with supervision in that if it's too tight, I feel like I get dumbed down. And if it's, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's good to keep it in mind. I, when my own practice, I've been practicing nine years. When I first started, of course, my supervision was close and I was terrified and uh, I learned a lot. And, <laughs> and then for the next two years, I practiced in, almost completely independently and I was terrified and I learned a lot, <laughs> a lot. <clears throat> um, and then I shifted gears and uh, was very closely supervised again. And I feel like I stagnated. Um, I couldn't, there were a lot of things I couldn't do, I wasn't responsible for, <clears throat> you know, avoiding conflict with my supervising physician because we did things differently. So I couldn't do things that I thought needed to be done. So there was conflict. And now again, I'm in an, a different environment where I'm like, I'm on my own again and I'm learning a lot because I have to do things Differently, I, I'm, I'm ultimately responsible in a much more obvious way. So I think that's really important to keep in mind in supervision that, like all providers, um, you know, we, we have to rise to the responsibility that's given us. Um, and uh, if, if the supervision is so tight, it can really result in the opposite of what you're hoping to accomplish, which is to provide a, a responsible, responsive provider. Well, I totally, I totally agree with that. And, and I think that everybody learns by, by experience. And, uh, you know, somebody who's been out for 10 years, uh, whether you're, you know, a 10-year practicing, as, as you've described for yourself in multiple different um, practice situations, you know, you probably know more than somebody coming right out of dermatology residency because you've had this, these experiences. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the, you, you can't, say that those three years of residency and five, and five years of medical school, four years of medical, was, didn't learn, people didn't learn anything from that, and that you can learn just as much by practicing for a while. Um, maybe you can, and, and maybe you can't. I think we have, to respect the, uh, we have to respect the fact that you guys, you know, you learn a lot. And I, I always kind of think, when I look at the PAs that have been, been with me, whether, is it better, do I, do I like it better for somebody right out of school or would I rather have somebody who's had, who's had experience? And for me, I'd rather have somebody right out of school because I want to teach them the way I want them to learn. And when you go, from your standpoint, practicing in multiple circumstances, you know, maybe when you switch jobs from one to another, you ought to look for the kind of supervision style that you want. So, I mean, if you want to be, if you feel as though you, you want to be or should be closely supervised, to look for that. You feel as though you want to be pretty much independent most of the time, Try, try to look for that. Find somebody who's gonna, who's gonna match with you. So, but for, so for me, to find somebody who has practiced for a long time and may have a different style is a little uncomfortable for me because as a supervising doc, I mean, I'm ultimately responsible. I mean, it's my medical legal, I'm gonna be, you'll be sued too, but I'll be sued as well. And you know, docs are the ones with the deep pockets. So I'm gonna be the one that's ultimately responsible. I wanna be sure that your style matches mine. 
So if, if I interview you and you're an experienced PA and I see, wow, you do a whole bunch of stuff that I don't do, even though you probably do it well, I'm not going to hire you because I want to be sure that I'm fully understand and, and what, you're, what you're supposed to be doing. And one of the things that I didn't show you in the Academy's guidelines, it says that, that um, non-physician clinicians that are being supervised by a doc shouldn't be doing things that the doc themselves doesn't do. So if I were somebody who, say, um, never did Botox treatments for hyperhidrosis, and you came to me and said, look, I'm an expert at this. I've done it all the time. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that, even though you obviously did, and you obviously know something that I don't do. So that's, I, I view that as a, a, the proper match of the, of the doc and the, and, the, and, the, um, and the PA, something you ought, to, you ought to both work out in your employment interview before you go to work. Yes, ma'am. I have a question for you um, about the AAD. I've been doing dermatology since 1985 at various levels of involvement. I've been involved in some other specialties as well. Um, as much as I want to support the SDPA, um, I would like to go to the AAD conference uh, because I think that the syllabus is broader and I could learn some other stuff there. But there's a huge disincentive for me to do that because of their practice of sort of rolling a registration. And I feel like a second or maybe third class citizen of the AAD, and I've decided to not attend. And I feel that my education is probably limited by that. And I wonder if you could speak to the AAD's philosophy of uh, how they manage their conferences. I can tell you that it's unique to other specialties. OK, well, uh, there's a lot of things that are unique about the academy. Okay, I th seem to have touched a raw point. Well, no, it is. And, and, and I know it very much so. And I'll, I'll explain to you the Academy side of it, which is obviously not yours. Um, the Academy has multiple educational sessions. There are very few of those sessions that are not filled by Academy members or could be filled by Academy members. I hear, every time I talk to a group of Academy members, I hear the same complaints. I can't get in to the sessions of my own Academy. So you know, it is the American Academy of Dermatology. The American Academy pays, the people pay the dues for that. They belong to that society. The view is that Academy members get the first choice on the sessions. And that's why there's rolling registrations. The Academy members get the first choices. Um, residents are down the line somewhere. You guys are down the line somewhere. Industry's down the line at the very end. Uh, I don't even remember what the, what the pecking order is. But we would love to be able to, to have you attend every single session of the academy, but our own members can't because of size limitations, because of, of room sizes, because of whatever. Uh, it can't. So that's, that's the reason. That's the real reason. Nobody is discriminating against you. Now, we did try and still do have uh, some specific tracks for um, PAs and nurse practitioners only. Uh, at the last couple of academy meetings, there have been that. There's been a day that's specifically just for uh, nurse practitioners and PAs. Um, it's not the same, and it's not the same meeting. Uh, I'm sure the ones that you want to go to are the ones that are the most, that are the, the hardest to get into. And those generally are, first of all, all the cosmetic things, uh, all the hands-on live demonstrations. We could have five times the number of people in those rooms, but then it totally loses the educational, um, um, you know, the, the educational value when you've got 2,000 people in a room who want to come. So. Whether it's right or it's wrong, I don't know, but that's the reason. 
It, it just seems to me that the need exists, so the academy has to adapt to that need and either broaden the number of talks, broaden the number of conferences, uh, somehow. Uh, well, we, we try to do that. We try to look at each, to at each session each year, who, you know, which were the ones that were oversubscribed. Can we get a bigger room the, the next time? You know, it's a, it's a huge, the, the, the big academy meeting is a, is a 20 ring circus. And it's a, it's, it's, um, it's a difficult thing to manage and to get right. And we try to do it. And that's all I can tell you is that's the reason. And, uh, you, you know, nobody, well, it's about nobody. A lot of people are unhappy every year. It's academy members and it's non, and it's PAs and it's PAs, people who just can't get into the sessions they want to get, get into. Uh, the economic reality is that if we really had many more sessions, the registration fees would have to be higher. Uh, there, there are other considerations in it. Um, can't make any further apologies. That's what it is. Yeah, I'm not asking for an apology. Just, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Other specialties manage to do it. So maybe you could look well, beyond okay, the tell me how it's, world. All right, well, all right, what session did you not get into that you wanted to? I didn't. I looked, at the, I looked at their protocol and said, I'm not going. Okay. I don't have to be treated like that after 31 years of practice. Okay, well, then... And as for a helpful criticism, then, not just, I don't like it and I'm not going, and I don't, and I don't want to be confrontational with you, but if you name some specific thing that you would like to see, and that's something that can be brought forward. But just to say, I'm discriminated against, so I'm not going, doesn't help anybody. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to speak on um, the supervision and then the specialization that you had um, talked about. With supervision, um, I was a physical therapist for about seven years and I went back to be a PA and worked in family practice and internal medicine and for the last seven years I've been in dermatology. Um, my supervising physician gives me a lot of autonomy but also likes to see all new patients together and she's not in there very quickly but just to confirm that we're both on the same page and then if I need her she's there, okay. although she's off site some days. Um, I think as a specialty it's so much different than what it was in family practice in that patients are coming to you because their family practice physicians haven't been able to figure it out. And I think that you do need a little bit of tighter supervision at times, and you especially need to know not only what you know, but what you don't know. And um, I'm always surprised in this field how still, probably every other week, my supervising physician utters a diagnosis that I still have to look up. So I think us as PAs still have to take a step back and be like, you know, we don't know as much. And even though we have all this vast experience, there still is so much to learn in this field. Um, and I don't think that I would ever be on the same level as my supervising physician, nor do I expect to be. Um, the other thing with the, um, as far as for us specializing, I think the great thing about being a PA is that I do have a broad base knowledge. And the nice thing that I like about it is that I can go to different specialties if I want. I understand what you're saying that maybe you know people that are in it and tend to be in it for a long time should do the distant learning initiative and increase their continuing ed in the field of dermatology specifically. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I would like to see PAs do what um, medical doctors have done and that you have to choose a specialty and then that is one that you have to pretty much stay with for your entire career. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's the rationale for doing what you, the way you're doing it. But then again, you're not able, you're not able to have that extra credential, that extra training. And it's a, you know, it's a choice, your specialty, will have, your profession will have to decide that. That's not something that we can decide on the, on the outside for you. And I do appreciate those, the first comments about how you're always hearing about, about new things. Uh, I think that I, uh, we all are always hearing about new things and it's important that we, that, that we realize that we, you know, no, nobody knows everything. It's important, yeah. I just wanted to say that I, I particularly agree with that 
that last statement. I've been a PA for about seven years, and I've actually worked in three different specialties. Um, and one of the reasons I went in to become a PA is that I do enjoy several areas of medicine, and it's been a significant strategic advantage in my career as we've moved for family reasons to be able to interview for three to four different uh, specialties when we move mm -hmm. and be able to select not just a um, not just a job but be able to select the best fitting job for me and I do think that the training you know on site is important when you enter a new specialty um, but I think most offices do that not only do the physician assistants want it but the doctors want to teach mm -hmm. them their own routine but I think that it would be a, a significant limitation if you were required to have a certification before you could go into a field, particularly for people that enjoy several different fields. To get three or four different certifications would be limiting. Okay, thanks. Let me actually, going back to this issue about the academy, let me make, let's have a little survey here. If the academy had a classification of membership for PAs, would you guys join, and, and, that, and that allowed you better access to the conferences. Would, that, would you do it? Okay. All right. If there were a board certification in dermatology for PAs, would you do it? Okay. So not everybody would do that. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you know, the, one of the debates that's going on right now within the academy is this very issue, is, um, you know, to what extent should we, should we, the academy, provide education for, for derm PAs, you know, as opposed to what the SDPA and all those do, and should there be a membership category for it? And should we consider some kind of certification? So uh, I got a yes to the answer to the first about membership and a maybe to the others. Yeah. I think the period of time that uh, is probably of most concern for the physicians and for, for dermatologists and for PAs as well as for patients is really when there's a steep learning curve for, for the provider. Um, because I think that's the time when there really is the most liability as far as the patient shouldn't really be a victim of our steep learning curve. We don't really know, you know, in the beginning, if we don't know what's going on and we have three working diagnoses that we're working out of, it's not fair to limit the care the patient gets. But it also places the physician at risk. But then there's a the flip side of that where the physician, there are some, some dermatologists or physicians who will uh, sort of use the PA to better their lives and, and really put them out, and that's a liability to the PA as well. They're not present when they need to consult with them. So I think really that's kind of the most dangerous window is when there are those steep learning curves professionally. I mean, I think that in the long term, it's very important for us to continue our education, but I, I think that if we could share the onus or the responsibility with dermatologists as PAs of figuring out a way to navigate that time period, I think that would really address a lot of these issues. You mean navigate and standardize, yeah. you think? That would, yes. Well? well, that's what I'm talking about is, is, is you know, should there be a core curriculum? Should there be a body of knowledge in dermatology, and how you get it, I, I'm not sure, so that when somebody says, I'm a derm PA, if, if that means anything, you'll know what that means, and the doctors, employees, you will know what that means, and we'll not have to train to that. We'll have to train above that, depending on what their individual practice styles are. I'd love to see that. I just wonder if there's there a collaborative way that, you know, the AAD and the SDPA, that these organizations could work together um, to, to create that kind of language and that kind of protocol. Well, I mean, the, the, the leadership of the academy, the leadership of the SDPA meet frequently and talk about this. Uh, and, and we're constantly working on it. But, uh, there's, you see what your leadership says about it, but 
What I can say is that since our, the Academy members, our Academy members are committed to education in dermatology, but not so much of one mind as how we should do it in terms of, of PAs and nurse practitioners. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, I really wasn't, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I wasn't really going to speak because I'm not a physician assistant. I'm not a dermatologist. I've been in the dermatology field since uh, my first meeting was at the Palmer House, and I think you and I may be the only two that understand that implication. Um, I now work for a consulting group for industry in dermatology as a specialty. And when I noticed your wait times for patient access to physicians, I think the most current data would support that it's even longer than that. Yes. People of my generation, the baby boomers who are retiring, are being replaced less frequently by people coming out of residency. Population is growing, and if Obamacare or anything similar to it ever gets developed, and we have another 30 to 40 million people entering the healthcare system, the wait time for dermatological access is going to be months. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand how the academy can believe that patient care can be provided by dermatologists without the use of physician extenders, NPs, PAs, um, to handle the routine care of patients. Uh, I think they're delusional in thinking that the existing board-certified dermatologists can handle that weight, that patient load. Well, I didn't, don't think I, I said that they could. And in fact, I totally agree with what you said. I mean, you know, we're, uh, we're giving people free tickets to the bus, the healthcare bus, but we're not making any new buses and all the existing buses are filled. I, I started these, this talk by saying physician extenders like you guys are going to be providing all the care. It's absolutely and positively true. I, I totally agree with what you said. In terms of, of, of uh, who controls the number of dermatologists that come out of training, uh, it's not the academy, it's not the American Board of Dermatology, it's the, uh, the controlling factor is economics. Uh, there right now today are vacant residency positions in dermatology around the country, even though there are approximately 40 physicians who apply for every dermatology spot. Uh, and the reason why there are vacancies is because of funding. Most residency programs in all specialties, no matter what they are, are funded through Medicare teaching dollars that, are, that flow through hospitals. And hospitals hire most residents. The only exception to that is the VA is a little different. So if I'm a hospital, and, and that number of residents was uh, frozen in, um, in about 1997. So for the last 15 years or so, there's been no increase in the total number of residents of anything. So if I'm a hospital and I have uh, 50 residency positions to, to dole out through over all the specialties, I'm going to want to have residents to work in my ER and assist my surgeons in the operating room and make rounds in the ICU. And, and I'm not going to particularly want to pay for a dermatology resident who's going to bring no business to my hospital uh, or not help my inpatient service because there's no inpatient service in dermatology in most cases. So that's the reason why there's no more dermatologists. It's not because people don't want to be. The, you know, the, the, the brightest and best and the high, uh, medical school graduates all want to be dermatologists. And, and that's, that's a true statement. When you look at the, at the, um, the, uh, the board scores of, of docs getting into residency, dermatologists have the highest of anyone. And when you look at the error bars, you know, what's the highest and lowest of the dermatologists? 
the lowest dermatologist is higher than the highest of the next specialty, which, by the way, is plastic surgery. So there's not a problem about not people wanting to be dermatologists or even the, the capability to train them. It's the fact that the money to do so doesn't exist. Uh, so that's, that's why this crisis that you describe is absolutely correct. And the, the workforce issue is going to be, you, you guys are going to be doing the care, for the, the, taking the care of the skin disease. And, and uh, the, the, the issue is how to, how to best do that, how to best educate, train, and supervise. And I'm, I think we've, we've talked about the options for doing that. I think maybe one more question, and we're about to the end of the time. time. Yes, ma'am. Not a question. I just wanted to share my experience. I've sure. worked for three different dermatology practices. And for those of you who are just starting out in the field, what I'd recommend is going to a bigger practice who has a lot of dermatology PAs, or, or what they're calling dermatology PAs. Um, the first um, dermatologist I worked for was a dermatopathologist, and he wanted me to see all the general dermatology. He just did skin cancer screenings and biopsies. So I got training from another PA for three months, and then I was cut loose, which, as someone said before, they were terrified, so was I. Um, and that was the extent of my training. So I left that practice after a year. I went to another dermatologist who never had a PA, but I have to say maybe saw quality of life, but maybe also dollar signs. And I went there to get trained. And when I got there, she said, oh, I, I don't have time for this. So again, I, was, I felt like it was a disservice to patients. I shouldn't stay there. I wouldn't be able to provide the best care. And finally went to a practice I'd heard of, but was a little intimidated by because it was so big. But they had, at the time, six PAs. And now we have, I think, 15 PAs. I stayed for six months with the head of the practice. And of course, like you talked, coattailing, and then getting to see and getting to present patients. And now I practice in an office where they can't get a doctor to cover. So that's where I cover, and I'm, you know, the doctor's always available by phone, by email. If there's something I need to discuss with my supervising physician, I can always reach him. But I would just recommend if, if you're newer, you really want to go to a bigger practice that knows how to train PAs. The, being the first one, you might get lucky to get somebody who understands how to train you, but if you love dermatology as much as I do, you want the best training that's available. So it's really crucial to find that right relationship and it may take you a couple practices to find it, but it's, it's very important for your, your professional career. So, for what very, it's very wise comments. I totally agree with that, actually. Okay, well, I, I tended to, to start a little controversy, and it looks like I have. Uh, so what I'll do is before somebody starts throwing anything, I'll run out the door. So thanks very much. Thank